Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Hey, everybody. Hello. Welcome back to Ridiculous Romance. Yeah. Oh, we got one for you today. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, yeah, this has been... Uh, let, let's, let's wait. Hang on, let's take a second before we get into that okay. and just take a second to appreciate uh, something. I don't know. How's your, how's your day? How you feeling? How's the world? So, uh, give me a good one, though, not one of the usual bad ones. I know, right? How's the world? <laughs> I don't think you want to ask about that. Um, no, I think it's fine. I think things are going good this week. Yeah. I feel, feel like weirdly not behind in all my work, right. or at least as bad as I was there right. for a minute. Yeah. So that's kind of nice. It's feel hard a little to... more whelmed. You say whelmed yeah. as opposed to overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah. I'm just whelmed. Feel more whelmed than overwhelmed. <laughs> but yeah, we're feeling good. Yeah. I think, relatively speaking, this time in January. We took down the tree before it fell apart on its own. That was something. Yeah, that's true. I, I was, was I was sitting close. near I was sitting near the tree last night and an ornament just fell off and landed safely on the ground. It was a very light little ball. That wasn't the first one, I'll say. No. Another ball had fallen, and I had yes. rehung it for some reason. Like, I was like, put it back on the tree. <laughs> like, just package it up. Anyway, whatever. Yeah, but I went to Diane, and I was like, you know, overnight, the rest of these might come down hard. Yeah. So we should strip the tree. <laughs> we were already late doing, but we did it. So that's nice. That's now good. We've got, we've got all that cleared out. We're yeah. ready for the new new year, I guess, yeah. of, of decorations well, to come. Well, that's the thing. There's barely any holidays between now and the fall. I mean, you That's get true. your your Valentines and your Easter's and things like that. Well, my birthday. 
Yeah, we that's a national holiday. We don't decorate the exterior of the house for it. Well, maybe we should. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> what color lights for your birthday? Mm. Should we get some inflatables? Yes. An inflatable Chris Pine. I would like an inflatable Chris Pine <laughs> carrying a bag of books. If we buy an inflatable Chris Pine, that thing's never going to be out in the yard. No, <laughs> that's true. I'll be holding on to him. Yeah, he'll night. all be snuggled on the couch. I'll have my, yeah, I'll have my arm around him as we watch <laughs> Ducktales or something. <laughs> you and your inflatable Chris Pine watching Ducktales. Yes, please. <laughs> well, it's all fun and games until we get to the Holocaust. <laughs> oh, oh, ain't man. that the truth? Yeah, guys, uh, we we've got a real episode for you today, and I, I will tell you up front that this is a beautiful love story. It is. There is a lot of wonderful things about it. And I can tell you without spoiling anything that this the woman who is telling this story wrote her autobiography in 2005 in California. So we know that uh, she survives her experience. So if if that gives you something to kind of make it through this episode, then that's good. (sighs) On the other hand, this is an experiment for us to a degree, too, because this is definitely a ridiculous romance. It definitely belongs in this show. But, you know, we like to keep it loose. We like to goof around and joke. (laughs) And there's just, there's not a lot of comedy here to be found in, you know, the the Holocaust. Right. And I think that we know that going into it. And I don't know what it'll be like when we have this conversation. I know we've read over this story. And and it's been a challenge. Um, It was a challenge to research. Um, Uh, But I, I think it's an important story to tell. Um, I really hope that you love it, and I know we'll love telling it in a different way than we love telling some stories. But uh, yeah, no, it's, but it's really important, and yeah. like you said, it's powerful. Yeah, because it is such a beautiful love story. So definitely worth hearing. Definitely worth telling. Yes. So let's do this. Yeah, Hannah Lore Wolf is our is our heroine today. She was a young Jewish woman in Germany who was sent to seven different labor and concentration camps across Poland and Czechoslovakia during the Holocaust. But amidst all the unspeakable horrors that she faced, she did manage to find the love of her life, a Polish POW named Bernard Hillman. And there's not much more to say before we get into the stories. I would say we just jump right in. Let's do it. This is also so weird reading this as our like fun poppy lead-in music is playing, but here we are. Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show ridiculous romance. A production of iHeartRadio. Laura Hillman was born Hannelore Wolf on October 16th of 1923 in Aurich, Germany. And she was the third of five children born to Caroline and Martin Wolf, a Jewish couple who were proud and public about their Jewish heritage. Being Jewish in Germany at this time was already difficult, but when Laura was nine years old, in January of 1933, Adolf Hitler was named Chancellor of Germany, and things quickly became worse. So, I say we start this episode with a quick fling with history. Can you believe that? Laura's father, Martin, had fought in World War I for the Germans, as did at least 100,000 other Jewish soldiers. Now, despite many of these guys fighting on the front lines, and despite over 12,000 Jewish soldiers dying during World War I, 
in service of Germany. Many Germans, including Hitler, blamed the Jews for Germany's defeat. They stereotyped them as cowards and falsely claimed that they were neglecting their military duties. There were even conspiracies that Germany couldn't possibly have lost the war mm. and think that was anything that could have happened. And that traitors in Germany, including an organization of Jews, had betrayed the country and forced a surrender. It's just, just a, an absurd thing from people who were too proud to admit that they lost right. and needed a scapegoat. Right. And this was just among the many things that Germans targeted Jews for mm -hmm. uh, after World War One. Yeah. And we'll, we'll say that, you know, the Great War was not just Germany's fault. It of was course. a lot of many countries made many decisions yes. to lead to that. Um, but they did have to take all of the blame uh -huh. by, because being the losers, I yeah. guess. So you can kind of see where that mentality of being like, but it wasn't us, but we have to freaking deal with everything and pay everything back. You can kind of see why that would lead to kind of like a frothing at the mouth mentality right. for a right. very long time. So by the late 1930s, with the openly anti-Semitic Nazi party in power, it became dangerous for Jews to just walk down their own streets in Germany. Then, on November 9, 1938, a Polish-German Jew named Herschel Grinspan walked into the German embassy in Paris and assassinated the Nazi diplomat Ernst von Roth. And Hitler lost his damn mind about yes. it. Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels delivered a speech saying, quote, The Fuhrer has decided the demonstrations should not be prepared or organized by the party. But insofar as they erupt spontaneously, they are not to be hampered. So the message was clear to party leaders that they were to organize a pogrom. And a pogrom is basically an organized riot targeted specifically at a particular ethnic or religious group. And you will see Jewish pogrom put together many times in yeah, history, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. And so so insane that they that Goebbels, who I read that Goebbels was trying to save face. He had actually was in some a little bit of trouble with Hitler at the time. Oh. And that when Hitler stormed out of the room and didn't give his speech after Vom Roth was killed, Goebbels took as an opportunity to step up and say, I'm going to do something crazy and and earn the favor of Hitler back. Oof. And this to me, I'm reading about this and it's like. This was sort of the launching point or a turning point when everything went from this sort of like we're quietly subjugating people horrifically to we're going all out ballistic on these people in a really horrible way. Yeah. Because within hours, brown shirts, Hitler youth and other German just citizens took to the streets and they shattered the windows of about 7,500 Jewish stores and businesses and they looted their goods. Violence against Jewish people hadn't been officially sanctioned, but people did it anyway. Of course. And police were basically instructed not to interfere, except to protect foreign and non-Jewish businesses. So whatever you do to Jewish people, we're just going to turn our heads. Mm -hmm. uh, if, it, if it expands to other people, then we'll, we'll step in and stop it. But very, it very similar to the race riots yep. of the 20s here in America yep. when white police were like, go ahead. Yep. Get rid of any black business you want, but don't bother these white people. 24 hours later, the streets of Germany were covered in broken glass of Jewish shops, offices, and synagogues. And the pogrom became known as Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass. And this wasn't just in Berlin. This was all across Germany, Austria, and the Sudetenland. 91 people were killed, and more than 30,000 Jewish men were arrested 
and sent to concentration camps. Over 250 synagogues were destroyed, including the one where Laura Wolf and her family were worshipping. Laura's school had been destroyed as well. And after Kristallnacht, Jewish children across Germany were not allowed into public schools anymore. Fortunately, Laura's older sisters, Rosal and Hildegard, had been able to leave the country for England in Jerusalem, and her father found a school in Cologne, France, for her younger brothers to attend, although they had to live in an orphanage in order to do so. Mm-hmm. As for Laura, her father found Dr. Frankel's boarding school for Jewish girls in a suburb outside Berlin, a little over 300 miles from their home in Aurich. And life wasn't easy at the school. She writes in her book that, you know, they had to have... Uh, ration coupons to go get food. Sure. Uh, you know, they, they couldn't really walk around Berlin outside of the school without getting harassed. They did have to wear the yellow stars mm-hmm. on their arms at this time. Okay. And so she even had some friends that were like, well, just wear a shawl and cover it up and then we can go to this ice cream shop. And they would like sneak out and do that mm-hmm. a couple of times until some, she said, some Nazi youth younger than they were saw them and said, you know, oh, why are you wearing this shawl? And like took it off and saw it and then chased them. They had to run back to their home. They're like, fortunately, the boys got distracted by something and we made it back to school. But just horrifying. Freaking Nazi youth. You know what I mean? Oh, like they're like, hey, turn all the nine-year-old boys into total snitches. Total nightmare. Awful. But she was safe in the school and she made some really good friends there. But in 1942, she received a letter from her mother. It said that six weeks earlier, her father had been riding his bicycle when the Gestapo stopped him and arrested him. And they sent him to Buchenwald, which was one of Germany's largest concentration camps. Just a few weeks later, her mother received a letter postmarked from Buchenwald, and it said, quote, Martin Wolf died of unknown causes on March 14, 1942. Urn contains his ashes. Unknown causes. Exactly. I mean, they're just, we're not going to say. It doesn't matter. You know, her, she asked her mother at one point, why did they arrest him? She said, well, they stopped him when he was riding his bike because he was delivering potatoes and had a knee injury from fighting for Germany in World War I and couldn't walk. So he took a bike. The Gestapo pulled him over and said, where's your permit for riding this bike? And he said, I didn't know I need a permit. And they arrested him. And she said, well, why didn't they just let him pay a fine? And she said, they're they're not they're looking for a reason to arrest him. They're making yeah. one up. It they doesn't matter. They don't want you to get off. Yeah. <laughs> they want to arrest you and send you to these camps. That yeah. is the the goal. Yep. News of her father's death spread quickly, and Laura's schoolmates brought her small gifts and treats. She says small chocolates, cookies, and sugar cubes were very touching because they had surely been saved for a really long time. Treats like that were incredibly hard to come by Mm -hmm. at this time. So they might have even been saving it for a birthday or something and decided to just give it to her, which is really nice. And a few weeks later, things turned even worse when another letter came from her mother saying, quote, The Gestapo has notified me that I am to be deported east, whatever that means. And she wrote that her brothers in Cologne had received the same orders and ended the letter, Do what you can to save yourself, my dearest child. When this is over, we will be together again. Remember that no matter how far away I am from you, I will always be near. Now, Laura couldn't bear the thought of her mother and her younger brothers being shipped off alone to God knows where. Right. It's not like they gave you information. There was no, like, destination stamped on your ticket. And no one to call. I right. Mean, if, if a year went by and you never heard from anyone, who yeah. you, who cares? Oh, like, let me just, uh, hang on, let me call the Gestapo hotline <laughs> and see if they can tell me where I'm headed next. Hello, I'd like to speak to your manager. <laughs> yeah. 
didn't quite work like that. Not so much. So that night, Laura, who was not one to take anything just sitting down, she wrote a letter of her own. It said, quote, To Gestapo headquarters in Weimar, I hereby apply for permission to travel from Berlin to Weimar. My mother and my brothers are being deported on May 8th from Weimar. I wish to accompany them. Hannelore Wolf. I mean, this is basically is, I volunteer as tribute. I mean, I, I, she just said, for, I would rather go with my family than have them go somewhere unknown. And be relatively safe without knowing anything yeah. that's happened to them. And, you know, her friends, like we're thinking now, are, are, were begging her not to do this. Of course. They told her, you know, it doesn't even matter. If you go with your parents and they put you on the same train, they're going to separate you. You're not going to be with them anyway. Right. And they told her, you know, your mother wrote in the letter, she says right there, do what you can to protect yourself. They even tried to wrestle the letter out of her hands. Oh, my God. I would be trying to set it on fire oh, if yeah. a friend of mine was doing something like that. Yep. I'm, I mean, I think I could, I guess I could understand where they were coming from. Right. But it, w- it would feel very like, why would you put yourself in harm's way like yeah. this? Although I guess it's stupid to think that. They're already in ha- harm's way just by well, existing. So you probably are like, fuck it. Just let me go be with my family. I and don't know. That's the thing. She told them, quote, sooner or later, they will put us all in transports and deport us all. So she felt like, you know, it doesn't matter. We, we only think we're safe here. She said that her father felt like he was safe. He felt like after his military service... After Kristallnacht and they didn't arrest him, when they when they kicked everyone out of that synagogue, he was one of the only men who wasn't arrested. And it was because of his knee injury. He just wasn't fit enough to be sent to a work camp. Hmm. And that's the thing that saved him. And and they had an opportunity. Her parents had an opportunity to leave Germany a few times before things got too bad. And he just felt like, you know, it's okay. We're safe here. So Laura knew at this point nowhere was safe. So Hmm. she felt like it was better for her to go with her family than to just stay here in the school and wait. And days later, the Gestapo responded. They granted her permission. And at this point, she was terrified. And she even had second thoughts. But on May 2nd, now, she was to travel from Berlin to Weimar for deportation. Laura was reunited with her mother and her two brothers. And the Nazis sent them all to Poland. We cannot, in this episode, spend too much time on the horrors of the deportation process. Yeah. But the strip searches... The floodlights, watching people beaten to death right next to them for the slightest defiance, trains packed so tightly they could barely move, and then the windows would be sealed shut. They were not comfortable journeys, to understate the matter. Yeah. And it wasn't long before the prisoners were separated by gender, and Laura and her mother were split from her two younger brothers. And Laura assured her mother that the boys were smart. They would find their way home eventually. But internally, of course, she's terrified for them. Right. And they were placed in a ghetto in Lublin, Poland, a sectioned-off corner of the city where Jews were made to work. And Laura's mother was assigned a job at a lamp factory, while Laura, who had been training to be a kindergarten teacher, was assigned to be a nursemaid for an SS family. She was told that that would keep her safe from deportation. Which, I mean, talk about a contrast of feelings at that. Because I'd be like, you're sending me to, like, work for directly for an SS soldier. Raise their children Raise to be good little children. Nazis. Yeah. I ethically don't want to do that. I'm personally terrified to do that. Uh, how wrong could things go? But at the same time, she's being told this is the safest place you can be. Right. You know, what's uh, Pippin in, in uh, Lord of the Rings says is the closer yeah. we are to danger, the further we are from harm. harm. It's kind of like that. I was about to say, you keep your enemies close. Yeah. Because then you can see what they're up to, I guess. Yeah. But it's very safe. 
it's as you say, yeah. incredibly difficult emotionally to figure out how to freaking process that. Mm-hmm. And Laura ended up working six days a week for them, and she actually grew quite fond of the two children that she was raising. And she hoped this was going to keep her safe. For a while, it did. But one day, the children's mother, who was none too kind, called the husband home early from work, and Laura overheard their conversation. And remember, this guy is an SS officer. He's a... a, a so a, soft, cuddly. Right, yeah. Your basic teddy bear. <laughs> But a busy guy, nonetheless, and he's kind of pissed that his wife called him home early. And he's like, what What do you What do you want? What is it? Mm-hmm. And she says that she's furious that her children seemed to like Laura more than her at this point. Like, Laura was too kind to them. She was winning them over. She was turning the kids against her. Oh, but you have such a sweet mother. Why would, you, why would you prefer this <laughs> other lady? Well, you prefer the kind nursemaid whose life is being threatened to take care of you over the Nazi mom you have? <laughs> Who sounds like a real Karen. The father actually defended Laura. And he oh. accused his wife of being a drunk. He's like, you're drunk again. Why'd you bring me home <laughs> from work? He told her, you know what I'm doing. And you know that all the diamonds and jewels I bring home for you are being taken from Jewish women. So maybe you ought to have a little more respect. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, it's weird for an SS officer to be like, you should be more respectful. <laughs> I stole all their stuff. Stop being so mean. Right. But the mother persisted, said, you've got to kick this girl out. I don't like her here anymore. And she heard the father say that it didn't matter anyway. He said, quote, the ghetto is being emptied of all the Jews and we will be going back to our old lifestyle. I'll be out of a job or worse yet, sent to the Russian front, which, aw. Oh, no. Poor, poor Nazi might have job. to go fight. You know, it. this is one thing that I saw in this book over and over again is that the thing these Nazis who worked in these camps were most afraid of was being sent to the actual front. Sure. This was a cush job for them. Yeah. And I imagine, and you actually kind of learn through some of these high-ranking officers, that the crueler you were, the more likely you were to stay there. Oh, okay. Softer, if you were being soft on the Jews, you'd be one of the first guys to go out to the army. So it just perpetuated that horrible behavior. Right. Well, I mean, how often have we seen that some of the worst things people have done in history they mm-hmm. were doing just to keep a job yep. or to make a boss happy yep. or to get a promotion right it's never not never but a lot of times it's not even malicious right you're not thinking about the end result of what you're doing mm-hmm. you're literally thinking about how it will affect you specifically and right. maybe maybe the people in your family <laughs> right but you know that's it's really personal advancement yeah. for a lot of people right more so than like you know, some big ideals or whatever. Right. And it's no excuse. No, it's of just, course. It's just showing how this brainwashing work, how when you ask how could they get so many people to be so horrible, it's many, many things that go into that. And, yeah. and this kind of level of psychological control is one of them. And it's, it is happening all around us yep. in many, many industries yep. and, and stuff. That's what's happening. So yep. People really just trying to keep a job or do better than that other guy they don't like. Yeah. So anyway, I think that's crazy. It makes me very upset, honestly, yeah. to know that because it's like. It's so much worse. How do you battle that human instinct? Right. So, yeah, she overheard this conversation. And sure enough, within days. The SS rounded everyone up to send them to other camps, and Laura and her mother were separated, and Laura was sent away to a labor camp called Biljitsa. 
And there, a friend helped her get work as a nurse in the infirmary, despite her not really knowing anything about nursing. Yeah. But the doctor was kind. It was probably the best place she could be in Belgica, which was described as, quote, not bad as labor camps go. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. Uh, the bar is underground. <laughs> yeah, right. Very <laughs> low real. bar. But after a few weeks, she learned that Belgica was also being liquidated and everyone was to be sent to Budson which was known to be among the worst of the labor camps. It was so interesting in this book to read about how often prisoners were shuffled around because right, of this camp is closing or this one's overcrowded. And we'll see that a lot in this story. Yeah, It's also interesting to me, like she got this job in the infirmary, mm-hmm. how much it remind me of stories you hear about the prison system, yeah. where if you know the right people and you can like collect the right items, you can trade for a slightly less horrible existence. Yeah. And there were a lot of people in the camps who kind of worked the politics of the guards and the prisoners and sort of had a little, you know, a little circuit going in terms of how they'd get maybe some extra food Mm -hmm. or a better job. Um, And the people who didn't know how to work that were really in a way worse position. Yeah. But before Belgica was shut down, The commandant, which is the officer who runs the camp, Mm -hmm. stepped into the infirmary. He was drunk and he saw Laura and he basically said, hey, that girl's pretty. You should bring her with us. So she was brought to his place, which was called Krajnik, instead of being shipped off to Budson. She describes Krajnik as this really strange camp where Jews lived in kind of nice houses and they walked the streets a little more freely and they shopped at stores. It's a very surreal kind of place the way she describes it. It was still this fenced off area of a town. The SS still policed it, but it was a very affluent area. And basically all the money they had allowed them to live a little more comfortably, still under very oppressive conditions. Right. Like a mink-lined cell or whatever. Yeah, it very much was. And when she got there, those prisoners were very suspect of her, and they didn't want her screwing it up for them. Sure. And so she had a real hard time making friends in that place. How interesting, too, that the camps were so different. Yeah. You know, like, I think, think too, when you learn about the Holocaust, you know, you learn about, like, Uh Bergen-Belsen and Auschwitz and stuff that were, like, the worst, and it's all gray and terrible Mm -hmm. striped pajamas and ashes everywhere. But, like, not all of them were like that. Some of them were like this. And it was probably really kind of smart to do that because there were probably plenty of people going, oh, I've been to one. It's not that big yeah. a deal. Don't oh, sure. be so afraid. It's sure. not a big deal. It's just a work camp. It's nothing, nothing, nothing to worry about, nothing to worry about. And then you end up at a smokestack place. Right. Do you know what it reminds me of is uh, 12 Years a Slave, mm-hmm. where you see him yeah. going to all these different plantations in that yeah. movie. And one of them... Benedict Cumberbatch's place, which he was very nice. Like he was trying to be the good guy and it made him actually kind of the worst. Worst. And I think that about Krajnik where I'm like, this is almost worse because it's like, no, this is fine. You're good here. I'm going to try and make you forget that you're imprisoned. Right. You know, which is in so many ways, not in every way, but in so many ways, a much worse thing to be doing to people. Yeah, it can. It can be. Yeah. I think with Benedict Cumberbatch, the problem was that you know it's wrong and you still do it. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. But I totally agree. It's it's yeah. like it's such a mind fuck. Yeah. So many Nazis, it was the same situation with them. They knew what they were doing was wrong. Of course. I don't I don't feel too good about this, but I'm gonna make you I march want off that to die raise somewhere. or whatever. Yeah, 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 I gotta keep my job. I don't wanna have to go to the Russian front. That's right. Nightmares. Mm. 
Now, the commandant of this place fortunately had forgotten completely about her because, again, he was drunk when he pointed to her and said, bring her along. Mm -hmm. So she just got lucky there. But there was this other Nazi officer who was so friendly to her that Laura started to suspect that he might even be a Jew in disguise. And he offered her one night a chance to sneak away. He could get her fake Aryan papers that would allow her total freedom. Ooh, that's tempting. It was very tempting. And she thought about it for a minute. She's like, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, this is my best chance right now and I gotta do it. So she goes with this guy late at night to sneak away and he brings her alone into this empty house. And there, instead of giving her anything, he beat her and he questioned her about the commandant who he thought that she had a secret romance with. He was like, why did he single you out to bring you here? There must be something going on. And this guy was vying for power. He was trying to get the commandant kicked out yeah. and look like the hero for it. But of course she knew nothing and she kept telling him, I know nothing. At which point he beat her again and he raped her. You know, and there's not much to comment on that. Oh. And not uncommon for yeah. Jewish prisoners either. I think it's not something that's touched on as much, but it was certainly something that Anytime you have abusive oh. men in power. With a bunch of women helpless. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So after this, she was sent to Budson, a Polish concentration camp, and her third location. Remember, they said that was one of the worst one of earlier. The worst. That was the place she was trying to avoid. And yeah, this was a much more difficult experience and much closer to the traditional depictions of concentration camps that you've read about that you might jump to like I do in my mind. Mm -hmm. Constant grueling labor meager rations that kept everyone hungry constantly, brutal assaults, random shootings. But it was here that she met a man who would make her dark days a little brighter. His name was Bernard Hillman, and we'll get to know him right after this commercial break. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. 
This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything. A moment that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these very moments. The last couple of years has been the hardest season of our marriage for sure. I'm surprised our marriage survived it. I think we both are. I think we both were barely holding on. Mm. Nothing compares to how hard this is. Their stories are full of candor, awe, and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. True behavior change is really identity change. Every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. Listen to A Slight Change of Plans on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the show, everyone. So Bernard Hillman was a Polish-Jewish soldier who'd been captured by the Nazis and brought to Budson as well. He was among the Jews who were forced by the Nazis to be an intermediary between the soldiers and other prisoners. This is a very complicated thing that, uh, you know, isn't for us to go into too much here. Um, but a lot of Jewish people were forced by the Nazis to work for them. Right. And some of them were awful. And they were they were also tried as criminals and traitors and it was horrible. Um, this guy had a very minor job. He was basically just the escort between the camp and their labor area. Mm. Um, and he got out of it as quick as he could. Another mind fuck. Yeah. By the way. Yep. So Laura met him when she was being brought to the woods for her assigned work to dig a mass grave. And they immediately locked eyes and they were totally entranced by each other. Now he told her to meet him in a small room behind the kitchen at night. And when they met there that night, which, again, amazing that she was trusting enough to do this after, after. her last experience, uh, he gave her stolen sweetened coffee that he brought and, and food. It was like nothing she'd had in weeks. And there he asked her how she came to Budson. And she just blurted out everything. She told him about volunteering to go with her family, about losing them, and even the rape she'd endured in Krajnik. Then he told her of how he arrived in Budson. He had been drafted into the Polish army in 1939. Before long, his unit was captured and sent to a German POW camp. 
And he was there for three years, barely surviving a case of typhoid fever. And he said after he recovered, he made an attempt to escape, but he was captured. And the Germans beat him so badly that he could not sit for weeks. At the POW camp, nobody knew he was Jewish. He didn't hide it deliberately, but when he saw Jewish prisoners singled out for punishment and the Nazis making them walk barefoot in the winter, he told Laura, quote, you can see why I didn't own up to who I was. Yeah. And one day the Germans made the prisoners an offer. They announced all Jewish prisoners were free to go home. He was eager to get back to his mother and his sisters, but just like Laura and the officer at Kreshnik, of course this was a lie. As soon as he and the other Jewish soldiers stepped forward, they were herded onto trains, awaited by men from the SS, and that was what brought him to Budson. It's so weird because it feels in retrospect. It just feels like, why? Why would you believe them ever? But at the time, this isn't history yet. This is it's just not happening. History. It's... You don't even know what's going on outside of your own prisoner camp. Right. You're in the bottle. Right. And all you can do is, is what's the bottle doing? I can't right. even care what the what anything else is happening outside of this bottle. Right. If you even know, which you probably if don't. If you even know, yeah. So it's just like, know. let me just take the best option available to me at any given time. And again, they're mind fuckers. Right. So they probably sometimes would tell the truth. Yeah. And some people oh, would end God, up. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Because Definitely. that would lead to more trust, which yep. means, oh, I'm going to get, it's like putting out a net and getting more fish, yeah. you know? Laura wrote that as soon as he finished telling this story, quote, it was at that moment that I realized how deeply I had fallen in love with him. Can you imagine love at first sight oh in God. a concentration camp? Love at first sight standing over the mass grave you're digging. I know. I mean, I I, I only barely believe it in regular life. I... <laughs> <laughs> it seems yeah. wild to be able to have like hearts and stars kinds of feelings mm -hmm. when you're in the midst of such heavy, horrible circumstances. I imagine the contrast must be be even greater though true. you know like that's true again just a light in a dark place be like a nice uh, cold drink of water in a yeah, desert yeah mm -hmm. um you know and and at this point she definitely gets into it in her book she's kind of has to find ways to reconcile with what she's doing because mm -hmm. it's you do that or you or you die because if you're not keeping up the pace of your work yeah. you die if you're being defiant or despondent at all they decide you're not worth their time yeah it was very easy to get yourself killed. Because that's what they wanted to do in the first place. Yeah. So you've got to kind of erase what you're doing a little bit um, and try not to think about it. Yeah. And that's definitely a you know, mentality that she describes again and again. Hillman revealed that he'd managed to get out of his duty as an underling for the Nazis, and he was going to go work in the camp kitchen. His friend the cook had arranged it. Nice. Again, you know the right people. Right. Even in a concentration camp, there's some strings you might be able to pull. And then it's a gamble as to whether or not that's going to work out for you. Isn't that funny? That's the world over, no matter what situation or circumstances you're in. If you know the right person, yeah. you can pull the right string. Yep. It's so weird. Yep. And it's scary because some of these strings were like, if you pull the wrong one, you're dead. Oh, sure. You know? And, and so you don't know. Anyone who was willing to help you out was taking a huge risk yeah. to themselves and maybe the people they cared about. Oh, yeah. Every few nights, Laura and Hillman managed to meet up in their secret spot where he gave her this warm, sweetened coffee and food. And she said, quote, the anticipation of seeing him each day made getting up at dawn not nearly as bad. But of course, not nearly as bad as relative when you're in a <laughs> concentration camp. Yeah. She was still working at the mass grave. 
One day, a woman next to her collapsed to the ground. When Laura tried to help her up, a soldier put his gun in her chest and said, she'll get up on her own. The woman struggled and cried, so the Nazi shot her dead, right next to Laura. Ugh. Meeting with Hillman again that night, he gave her a hot bowl of vegetable soup and a sweater and a pair of warm boots, and she could not believe this gift. I, I do want to interject here. At this point, at this camp, that was kind of okay. Like, you had some of the clothes that you brought with you. Okay. And she, if she had these warm boots, she could wear them. Yeah. You know, at this particular camp. That, that'll change elsewhere. But, right, right. But at least, you know, she had, if you had warm clothes, you could wear them. And that was a huge thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, she could not believe this gift. It was like heaven sent. And she asked why he would risk so much to make her feel better. And he replied, you should know by now why I'm doing this. Oh. Cute. And his friends called him Dick, so she started to call him Dick as well. That night, in the dark of the shed, they shared their first kiss. He asked what she remembered most about home, and she told him, quote, A lilac tree. It bloomed every May around the time of Mama's birthday. Papa would stand under the tree and sing songs of lilacs and love to her. And he smiled at her and replied, quote, One day when this is over, I'll plant you a lilac bush. Perhaps it will grow and become a tree like the one you remember. And the title of Laura's autobiography is I Will Plant You a Lilac Tree. Over the next few months, things started to change in Budson. Younger soldiers were being swapped out for older ones, which Dick explained to Laura was because the war wasn't going well for the Germans. So the younger men who'd been working at the camps were being sent to the Russian front. And she asked him over and over again where he was getting all this information, because mm -hmm. he knew a lot more than anybody else did. But he refused to tell her, and he actually started to withdraw a little bit. She saw him less and less. Mm -hmm. Soon, he disappeared entirely. And Laura started to get incredibly worried. She learned from a friend that Dick did have some connections to an underground movement outside the camp. Uh-oh. Somebody knew about this and had been blackmailing him. Mm -hmm. But eventually, that fell through, and he was turned over to the SS. Now, the commandant was away, so the soldiers that brought him in and imprisoned him couldn't do anything until he got back. This guy was in Berlin taking care of some business. So he just sat there, and three days passed, and Laura had no word from him. And then, while she was walking to her job, a prisoner came up behind her and whispered, quote, Keep walking. Good news. Hillman is free. He's in bad shape, but we'll get him back on his feet. Meanwhile, Laura discovered that one of her little brothers, Selly, was also at Butson, but he was emaciated and weak. He had been beaten to the point of his lung collapsing a few weeks earlier, and she knew that if he was too weak to work, the Nazis would kill him. When she heard that a group of weakened Jews were to be walked to the woods for execution, she dared to confront the camp's new commandant, Joseph Liebholt, a ruthless killer, and tell him that her brother was on the list mistakenly and that he could still work. Leopold was pleased that she spoke fluent German because they were in Poland again. Mm -hmm. So it's not a lot of people spoke German. He probably just liked hearing, you know, the sounds of home. Mm -hmm. So she was shocked when he ordered her brother to be taken to the infirmary, fed double rations and not to be disturbed. But unfortunately, he still died a few days later. It's so bizarre. And they, they talk about this in the book a lot, too. The, the SS is so unpredictable. Oh, yeah. And like you said, like you just never know when to trust them or not. 
they they commented that Laura's mother was sent her father's ashes. Yeah. That was many people did not get such a quote unquote courtesy yeah. from the Nazis. And that was so bizarre. They were never able to figure it out. They asked over and over again, why would they do it like this? Why are they doing this? Why are they showing this kindness? Why are they being that cruel? There was no answer. I, I mean, again, I really think it's psychologically yeah. like we are torturing you. Yeah. You just will never know where you stand. Right. You'll never know what to do, how yep. to move. That's a great way to imprison, effectively imprison an entire population without ever putting them behind bars. Yeah. You can very easily limit someone's movements yep. like that. And then if you're doing it while they're also behind bars. Right. And it's so sad, too, about her brother because she was this whole time. It's not the focus of this story, but if you read her book and you really, really should. Yeah. She's looking for her family. Mm-hmm. She does not know where they are or what happened to them ever. This Her brother, Sally, is the first one she's seen in months. And, um, and then he died there. And she was relieved that he died in the infirmary. Right. You know, as opposed to something more horrific, but that he died at all, of course, was tragedy in its own right. Now, over the weeks, Budson was growing too large with prisoners, and eventually they had to relocate them hundreds at a time to other camps. They started shipping out prisoners, and Laura was placed on a new train. Being separated by gender, of course, she had no idea if Dick was also being sent away or if they were going to go to the same place. Mm -hmm. Just no information. Again, no hotline. (laughs) You can't dial in. Right, and it's not like they're going to be like, all right, everybody, let me tell you exactly what's going (laughs) on so that you won't be nervous. Uh Uh-huh. When the train stopped and she paused briefly just to look to the other doors and see if she could see him, one of the SS soldiers beat her in the head. They all lined up, and the commandant from Budson, Joseph Leopold, was there, and he announced to them, quote, The easy days of Budson are over. Here you'll learn what work means. Which is I th- one of the worst things I've ever heard someone say. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that is God. At first, Laura got another nursemaid job. She went to go work for Leopold himself oh. as the nursemaid to his children. Again, because of her German he felt like, oh, you know, this girl, I'll, I'll keep an eye on her. I'll keep her close. Mm-hmm. You know, it was good to have his students with a German nursemaid. Yeah. But once again, his wife hated her. Who are these Nazi bitches? Oh, my God. And I, I wonder, again, if that's not just part of the program. That's true. Maybe it's part of the design. Although, I'll say in the book, she said she met another girl at the camp who also was her nursemaid for a while, and they got along fine. Oh. So, I don't know. Again, maybe it's the, by design. Maybe, maybe it's all part of that trust play that they're doing. Yeah, maybe so. I don't know, but he didn't like her. And Leopold, unlike the previous officer, was not standing up for Laura at all. Mm. Apparently, speaking German didn't, only went so far. Right. And he tormented her until she failed and blamed her for it and sent her to work in the salt mines, shoveling salt into the backs of trucks, which was brutal physical labor. And she got very sick while she was doing this as well. I mean, being sent to the salt mines is yeah. is basically shorthand for here's a horrible yeah. job you have to do yeah. and you'll probably die from it. Yeah. She learned while she was in the mines that Dick had been taken to the concentration camp at Plajauf after he'd smuggled a letter to her begging her not to volunteer to come be with him there. Yeah. Saying their commandant, Amon Goethe, was, quote, a sadist of the worst kind. And you may have heard of Eamon Goethe. He is the worst of Mm -hmm. the worst. I mean, this guy was a monster, and he was definitely hanged 
after the after the war. Oh, good. Finally, some good news. Yes, absolutely. But he was a monster. Uh, if you've seen Schindler's List, that's the character that Rafe Fiennes plays oh. in the movie. Um, so you just know what a bastard he was. He yeah. was really a monster. Just he would allegedly he would just stand at the bottom of the hill while prisoners were walking up to their job in the mines, pull out two pistols and just start shooting for fun. I mean, this this is the seriously sadistic uh, in a way that I've I, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone That's... has been since. So when Dick said, please don't do what you did with your family and volunteer to come here because it will not be worth it. She did not want to go to Plajov. Yeah, but it was not long before she was transferred there anyway. Ugh. Her fifth camp. This place was huge with wooden barracks extending for miles. Laura wrote, quote, I saw skeletons who resembled human beings walking from one end of the barbed wire complex to the other. She and the other transfers were forced to kneel while their hair was cut off. Her long, shiny hair was reduced to uneven stubble. Her clothes were taken, including the warm boots Dick had gotten for her, and she was given an ill-fitting gown and wooden boots. Everything about her identity was taken from her. She was reduced to just a number. And she received her assignment, once again, at a mass grave. Prisoners were made to even out the ground to hide the evidence of the atrocity. Yeah, this one was already a grave. and they It were was just, full. Yeah, and they were just smoothing it out so that you couldn't tell what it was. That is horrible. Yeah. And as her line of workers passed by a line of men, she heard a familiar voice say, I can't take it anymore. No lilac tree. It was Dick, but he looked bad. A few days after, she saw him again, and each time they met eyes, he looked worse. One day, a smuggled note came to her. Quote, Little one, our dream of being together is fading rapidly. I can't fight any longer. If only I could hold you in my arms once more. She read it over and over, wondering how this man who had risked his life so many times willingly to help others could have sunk into such a depression. And we will learn what was going on with him uh, for a little teaser for you right after this. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including... Actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. 
Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey there. I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything. A moment that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these very moments. The last couple of years has been the hardest season of our marriage for sure. I'm surprised our marriage survived it. I think we both are. I think we both were barely holding on. Mm. Nothing compares to how hard this is. Their stories are full of candor, awe, and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. True behavior change is really identity change. Every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. Listen to A Slight Change of Plans on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. Now, when Laura was finally able to meet with Dick, she learned what had broken his spirits. Since his arrival at Plajov, his job was to pull bodies out of the pit, rip the gold teeth from their mouths, and toss the bodies into a fire. Laura wrote, quote, I knew of the beatings and hangings that went on, but I didn't know about the mass graves of these proportions or of violating the dead by removing their gold teeth. All I could think was that the world had gone mad. But in this dark moment, Dick gave her a glimmer of hope. He said, quote, A man by the name of Oscar Schindler is taking 1,100 Jews out of here. If only we could go with them. All right. Now, you've heard of the infamous Schindler's List, and you've probably seen the movie. And seeing as how Oscar and his wife, Emily, saved over a thousand Jews from being murdered, you'll probably be hearing their episode on this show one day. (laughs) Yeah, I would like to do that one. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, But if you're unfamiliar, just real quick, his factory employed Jewish workers where he would regularly intervene on their behalf using bribes and personal diplomacy, quote, 
both for the well-being of Jews and to ensure that the SS did not deport his Jewish workers, according to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. In October of 1944, Schindler opened an armaments factory and drew up a list of 1,200 prisoners that needed to work in the new factory. That list was 800 Jewish men and 400 Jewish women from the murderous camp of Plajov. A few days later, Dick and Laura met through a chain-link fence separating the men from the women and whispered to each other. Dick was in better spirits than she'd seen him since they first met, and he said he had great news. In defiance of Eamon Goethe himself, Schindler had a list of Jews he would be taking from Plaszow to his camp in Czechoslovakia, and Leopold would be the commandant of the camp. Dick was among 50 Polish POWs that Leopold submitted to the list, and Laura was so happy for him, but also worried because Leopold you know, had been mad at her when she failed as his children's nursemaid. But while she worried, Dick blurted out, Liebhold asked for you by name. And she could not believe any of it. Not that a man like Oscar Schindler would do such a thing, or that Liebhold would select her personally. So they promised each other in that hopeful moment that no matter what, they would not give up on each other. Days and days went by and she didn't see Dick. She did. She didn't see Dick. She didn't see Dick. God damn it. Days and days went by without her seeing him. But soon, she and some of the other women in her barracks received an order. They were going to Schindler's camp in Brunlitz. The women were shoved into another train, but Laura said, quote, even when the iron bar was placed across the door of the cattle car, it was not as traumatic as it had been on previous journeys. Now, this trip was still terrible. There was a single bucket for a bathroom, which soon overflowed. They could barely move, barely breathe. She said, you know, it, it, it was desperate to get some real estate by a crack in the wall. Sure. So there would be know. breeze or some fresh Yeah, room. and they would start to get mad at each other. This person doesn't have enough room. This person has too much room. Just a really horrible journey. They had virtually no food or water for days as they traveled across Poland. Finally, the train stopped and the doors opened. The group of men came up and rushed them out of the train with even more urgency than usual. And Laura felt like something was wrong. This was not Brunlitz. She asked one of the men where they were, and he whispered back to her, this is Auschwitz. Now, Laura wondered if there had been a mistake, but as we've said, there's no one to register a complaint with or ask... Yeah. For anything, she, you know. She even thought about it. She said, I thought about going to one of the guards and saying, excuse me, I'm I'm on Oscar Schindler's list. And she said, you know, that she might get herself killed just by asking that. Just for, yeah, just for asking the question. Yeah. So you just don't ask. And the guards marched them for hours from the train station until they finally reached the gates of the camp. Some still had hope, knowing that Oscar Schindler would save them. But Laura had lost any optimism. She saw smoke billowing from a towering chimney, and a girl near her explained, There are showers here with no drains. Instead of water, gas comes out, and the bodies are burned in that crematorium. Laura didn't believe it until she smelled it. And soon, she and several other girls were led into a large tile room with shower faucets overhead. She was terrified. For several minutes, nothing happened, and she prayed that if she were going to die, that at least it would be quick. 
Then, miraculously, water came pouring down, and the girls laughed and cried and they hugged each other in that moment. But things were worse at Auschwitz than anywhere she had been yet. She wrote, quote, My hunger was so intense, I started to lose touch with reality. I dreamt of Dick and our happy stolen moments. Was he safe in Schindler's camp, or had he too been betrayed? The plans we'd made, the planting of a lilac tree, those dreams were all that sustained me now. Uh, She learned that they were actually in Birkenau. In 1941, Himmler visited Auschwitz and ordered that it be expanded, and Birkenau was created. Auschwitz as a whole could now hold 125,000 prisoners who were subjected to daily torture, hard labor, meager rations, and even medical experimentation. Some were given diseases, like spotted fever, for vaccination research. A Nazi gynecologist tested absolutely horrific sterilization techniques on women in the camp that we're just not going to go into in detail. Please don't. And Joseph Mengele practiced unneeded blood transfusions and dissections on Romanis who were, were there who had either twins or had any kind of disability. From its construction in May of 1940 to its liberation by the Russian army in January of 1945, Over 1,100,000 people were killed just at Auschwitz. Soviet soldier Ivan Martinushkin told the Times of Israel that when the Red Army invaded Auschwitz, quote, we knew nothing. Then we noticed the people behind the barbed wire. It was hard to watch them. I remember their faces, especially their eyes, which betrayed their ordeal. At first, these prisoners were frightened of the Russians and they didn't believe they were being freed. Again, we've talked about how they play with your trust here. All in all, there were only 7,500 living people when the Russians got there. I think it's telling, too, that this Russian soldier said, we didn't know anything about this. Yeah. How many of them didn't? I mean, that shows you how closed off the news loop was. People really had no idea the extent of what was happening at these places. And there might have been rumors, but it would be very easy to discount them because they were so wild. Like, why would you... I'm not sure you'd believe... I mean, we have people today that don't believe it happened, but especially at the time, without seeing it for yourself, it would be really hard to believe that anyone was capable of that. And among the deaths at Auschwitz, suicide was not uncommon. This probably doesn't surprise anybody listening to this story. Um, Some people threw themselves against electrified fences. Laura considered, as many had done before, just stopping work and letting a soldier do the rest. But in these dark moments, she said, quote, In my mind, I took leave of all the people I had loved in life. Only when it came to saying goodbye to Dick did I hesitate. Had we not promised each other not to give up? So she chose instead to save her own life. One day she was selected with another group of prisoners for what she knew was going to be execution in the gas showers. And when she saw a group of heavy laborers walking by, she slipped out of her own line and joined them. She broke and lifted rocks the rest of the day with only an inconsequential holdup when the Nazis counted one too many workers in that group. And when she returned to her barracks that night, she was punished by her bread rations being taken away. And Laura wrote, quote, 
a small price to pay for my life. Seriously. I mean, again, just another ballsy move. Seriously. A crazy moment to try and save your own life. If she hadn't thought to do that, that would have right. been it. Yeah. And it, it was something that she also spoke about a lot. Uh, you had to really keep up your appearance as a healthy worker. Oh, sure. You never wanted to be in the infirmary for longer than a few hours. Mm. Or they would come in. If somebody was there for more than two days, they'd come in and say, all right, Get kill rid them. of them. If uh, they would have inspections um, every morning and evening and they would pinch their cheeks to look rosier, yeah, so they looked sure. more alive. Mm -hmm. Some girls would even prick their fingers and rub blood into their cheeks like they used to do for, you know, for Rouge, rouge uh, just to look healthier um, because they would just pull people out and execute them right there in front of everyone. Ugh. As the weeks turned to months and autumn turned to a cold, brutal winter, the 300 women who were on Oscar Schindler's list rarely mentioned his name anymore. But then one night, Laura thought that she was dreaming when she heard a pounding on the door. A soldier shouted, quote, Schindler women, up and out. Their names were read out one by one, and then she heard it. Hannelore Wolf. Now at this point, Laura was barely surviving. She was skin and bones, and she could barely make it to the train. And this journey was even more difficult than the fake ride that took them to Auschwitz, since they were so much weaker now. But finally, they arrived at Brunlitz. Someone shouted, look, that man in the hat, that's Oscar Schindler. And Laura said she expected this like little portly man, but she saw this dashing, tall, charismatic guy who assured them all that they had nothing more to worry about. He pointed to a large building and told them that hot soup and bread were waiting for them. When they went inside, there was a balcony above the dining hall where men stood waving and calling out to the new rescued women. Above all their voices, one stood out to Laura, shouting, quote, Little one, I've been looking all over for you. But Laura was too weakened and embarrassed at her current state to respond. She even thought she might be hallucinating, so she ignored it. Ugh. Yeah, can you imagine that this, again, trust, after all this, uh -huh. after every, every Nazi, and Oscar Schindler technically is a Nazi. Right. And how many of them have said, you're safe here. Don't This worry. is the best place you can be. I've got food for you. Pointed at a great. large building. Pointed at a large building. It's go a go in inside. There. I, I'm, it would be so hard to do it. It's this balance of like, how can you trust anyone anymore? And at the same time, you just have to trust everything. Yeah. Because you never, because something someday is going to kill you. Yeah. And you might as well just say, all right, if you say so, I'll go with this one. Maybe this will be the thing that kills me. Maybe this will be the thing that saves me. I, I just can't imagine having to live with that mentality. It's insane. And, it, you know, another thing worth remembering is that sometimes you question people's choices. Yeah. As if they have a good choice to make. A lot of times you just have a lot of shitty options. Yeah. And you have to pick one. Yeah. And after the fact, you can say how stupid they were or whatever, but there's really no, there's no knowing. Joseph Leopold was the commandant at Schindler's camp, but Schindler was having a difficult time controlling him. The male prisoners told the women that they'd overheard him saying his goal was to exterminate every Jew. Mm. But when Schindler established the camp, he ordered that his workers were not to be harmed, and he had to place constant bribes to keep them alive. 
He was arrested three times by the Nazis, but the charges never stuck. He was very well connected. Oh, yeah. Very wealthy. It's crazy. Uh, and again, we'll do the Schindler episode eventually, yeah. but or we'll get more into this. But he kissed a Jewish girl on the cheek and they arrested him. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but he was always able to get out. This guy spent he was very wealthy and he spent so much money keeping these people alive. Yeah. So much of it was bribery. Mm-hmm. Two nights later, after her arrival, through the fence that separated the men and women, she saw Dick. They touched their fingers through the chain link. He had secured her a job in the kitchens where he could again bring her sweetened coffee and extra food as he had done in Budson. And in the relative freedom of Brunlitz, Dick could tell her all about his connections to the Czech partisans who were helping. They were providing the Jews with food, a radio, and even guns, quote, for when the time comes to use them. And he knew it was only a matter of months before the Russian army would arrive. Liebholt was their only obstacle. One evening, Dick told Laura to close her eyes. And when she opened them, he was holding out an apple. This was incredible. She said that she was like a child with a piece of candy. And her strength came back to her as she ate fuller and better meals. And while working in the SS Kitchens wasn't pleasant, as you can imagine, she believed Dick when he said that she had nothing to fear. She said of the soldiers she fed, quote, they were sullen men from humble backgrounds. Now that they had been put into positions of power, they suddenly felt self-important. They treated her with disdain and complained about the food she served them. And I don't know if any of y'all have ever worked service industry in a restaurant, (laughs) but it's already like that with just a normal person who comes in and is like, I have a position of power now. A lot of people in restaurants don't act like themselves. That's true. They get a little worse. That's true. Now imagine those people are actually Nazis. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, that's why, you know, if you're going out on a date, it's great to see how the person treats the, the serving that's staff. That's true. That's true. Because that's how they treat people yep. who they think of in any way, shape, or form as being a little bit less than them, yep. at least in this particular place. Yep. Someone who has to serve me and they have to do what I say. Absolutely. And how you act in that situation says a lot about your character. It really does. And these guys were awful. Um, yeah, these characters suck. Uh-huh. Now, occasionally, Oscar Schindler himself would come into the kitchen and he'd say something very nice to her. She said she was. he was always very kind, and he would loudly ask her, Are they treating you right? Ooh, <laughs> like, hint, hint, yeah. This guy was awesome. Yeah. Otherwise, Schindler would be gone from the camp for weeks at a time, but they knew that his absences were related to their survival. Mm-hmm. Again, he was often out just making bribes, wheeling and dealing to make sure, no, you can't ship these people out of my camp. I need them. They're very valuable. A lot of the workers in Schindler's camp... W- would have been killed somewhere else. Like, mm-hmm. they were not skilled laborers. Right. They were not very healthy, strong people. And he said, no, I I specifically need these people. You cannot take them away. Give me some more if you got them. And it cost him a lot of bribe money. Mm-hmm. I mean, but that's so amazing, too, because he probably knew, like, well, if they do have a skill, they're probably being spared anyway. Yeah. Because we need, the, you know, Germans need the skills. Yeah. So if they're unskilled, that's who I need to save. Right, right. So I got to find a way to make him look useful. Uh (laughs) Like, that's really amazing. But when Oscar Schindler did not return for months, the prisoners started to worry. Hmm. 
Dick noticed that Liebholt was spending more time on the factory floor with inspectors. He thought they were going to send word to Berlin that Schindler's factory wasn't efficient enough, and that could undermine his power. This is so crazy to think about, like, you're so close. You're there. You're at Schindler's camp, the safest place you can be in this world, and still the threat is constantly there. Yeah. And can you imagine being like, I I have to survive this because I'm so close to the end and how scary that would be. Oh, God. No. (laughs) Because you have so much more hope here than anywhere else. Right. You know, in other places, people just have lost the will to live. Yeah. And here you're being given like, we just have to make it through the war and we're going to be okay." But then there's this guy there, this power crazy lunatic who loves to hurt and kill people. Yeah. Oh, God. But fortunately, in April of 1945, Oscar returned for his 37th birthday. He gave kind of a drunken speech on the factory floor to workers and soldiers alike, telling them that the Third Reich was soon coming to an end and that the SS men here were now the prisoners of Brynlitz. Damn. Which would be a dope speech to hear, I have to say. Oh, man. I feel like that would really fill me with a lot of joy that I'd be like, am I a bad person? No, I'm a good person. (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) But unlike me, this speech frightened Laura and Dick. Yeah, yeah. Probably because they've been through a lot, so Well, it was a a ballsy move for a drunk guy to pull out right at the end there. You know, that's what Laura and Dick thought. They were like, if Leopold heard about this speech, he could take extreme action. And we know what extreme means when Mm -hmm. it comes to Nazis. But later that night, a friend approached them, shouting, This is important! Liebholt has left Brunlitz! He is on the way to the Russian front! It was Oscar Schindler's doing! Yay! I love it, he got him sent right to the place none of them want to go. Oh, so deserved. Sorry, bitch, deal with the Red Army now. Uh Uh-huh. And I don't know, it's hard to find stuff about Liebholt specifically. I don't know if he died there or was tried later, but we did not have to deal with him anymore. Bye! Bye. So a little over a week later, Schindler assembled the workers and announced, quote, what I have to say is important. Germany has unconditionally surrendered. I have just listened to the BBC and to Churchill's victory speech. We've been through a lot together, but what we hoped for has finally happened. And within days, the Russian army came to the camp. Dick grabbed Laura's arm and ran her outside where the Russian officer on horseback walked through the gate. In Russian, Dick called out, Welcome, our liberator! The Russian officer teared up and told them, quote, I am a Hebrew like you. You can walk out of here at any time. And for a brief moment, there was a great silence. And then an eruption of cheers and cries in a half dozen languages, all saying the same thing. We are free. Laura's autobiography ends here. But she and Dick were married on October 22nd, 1945, in Bavaria by a Jewish army chaplain. She learned that her mother, both her brothers, and 63 members of her extended family had all been murdered in the Holocaust. Only her two older sisters, who were already living outside of continental Europe, had survived. In 1947, she and Dick came to America and started a new life in New York City. Eventually, they settled in Los Angeles, California, where they had a son, Rob Hillman, in 1954. And there, Dick kept his promise and planted her a lilac bush. 
1986, Dick Hillman died of heart disease. Laura ended up working as a docent at the Long Beach Museum of Art and traveled to high schools across the country to tell stories about her experiences and spoke publicly about the dangers of bigotry, bias, and prejudice. In 1993, her son Rob took her to see Schindler's List at the theater. He said in an interview, quote, She kept whispering to me about how accurate the movie was. When we left, a woman who'd been sitting behind us berated my mother for talking throughout the movie, saying it was not being respectful. My mother replied, Oh, I just wanted to tell my son about my experiences in the concentration camps. <laughs> the woman was so embarrassed she could have sunk into the floor. I mean, as a reply goes, that's pretty good. I mean, oh my God. So anyway, stop talking shit. Yeah, <laughs> she... Keep it to yourself. Mind your business. Mind your business. At Schindler's List. Mind your business at Look, Schindler's List. If I saw an old woman whispering to her grandson during Schindler's List, my first thought is, oh, God, did she survive the Holocaust? Okay, either she's a Nazi or Jewish, and I'm not want to hear it. Either way, I don't want to interrupt. Oh, my God. Laura said it was always painful for her to relive her memories from the camps, but she said in an interview, quote, It's very important to understand one another that we are not prejudiced, that we don't condemn people who don't look like us or have a different religion. We will never have peace in the world until we learn this. Laura died peacefully in her home in Orange County on June 4th of 2020 at 96 years old. Oh, wow. Man, can you imagine being in one of those camps and trying to imagine 2020? Or California? Or the next day. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it seems like um, so much that you have to really make your days very small. You know, it's really minute by minute more so than like what's happening tomorrow or next week. Yeah. But you also kind of have to think about that yeah. in a way. Like they're, you know, like this guy, this Leopold thing. They're like, oh, is this speech going to, what's he going to do? Yeah. You know, but it's still very small. Your world is so shrunk. Oh, man, this story. Uh, yeah. I mean, but how how nice. It's he, beautiful. She got her lilac bush. Yeah. And they got to be together. And that goddamn lilac bush gets me every time. Oh, my God. Uh, I, I'm, and I was like, I didn't even cry when she's getting raped and stuff. But I, <laughs> as soon as I read that lilac bush, I started to sob. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a real beauty to it because if you you can just see the love that human beings are capable of right. despite any circumstances. Yeah. And that's magical. That's wonderful. I, I seriously wish we could stop creating these circumstances for ourselves to have to find love in, you know? Yeah. Like, why? Why? And I, I, I mean, I don't know. It, it just hits so hard. And, and you really need to read this book. It's a very interesting story. It's very different from other sort of Holocaust and concentration camp literature you've read and it's shocking and it's unbelievable and I, I think even today as we see horrible things happening and people treating each other horribly and prejudice and bigotry and all this um, even knowing that it's still hard to believe how something like this could happen mm -hmm. but um, and well you just want to do whatever you can to stop that from ever happening again 
And I don't know that something at this scale, this organized could happen in in the modern world. But at the same time, this was 80 years ago. Yeah. This was very yeah. recent, historically speaking. Mm -hmm. The time between World War One and World War Two is like from 9-11 to now. That is not a long time. That was like a that was like a pause, practically. Right. Ugh. It's, a, it's crazy. Yeah. And then, of yeah. course, people, you know, get out of World War One and go, well, we'll never do that again. What yeah. a terrible idea. We're yeah. all so fucked from that war. Yep. And I'm sure. Well, obviously, that led to a lot of isolationism and people going, I'm not getting involved in all that shit that y'all are doing over there in Germany. Right. For a long time. But but I think also there was a sense of naivete of like, well, it's how could the whole world be in conflict again? That right. can't be. That can't happen twice. Yeah. In a lifetime. That's wild. Yeah. Who would expect that? Well. I think we've kept you in the Holocaust for long enough. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, I think I think just to yeah lighten it up a little bit, as you said, it's just really wonderful to see the humanity come through yeah. in times when it would even seem to be smarter to abandon your humanity. Absolutely. Um, just for survival. Yeah. To be like he put himself at risk to help her and other people. Oscar mm -hmm. Schindler did it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it would make more sense logically to go, well, fuck everybody else but yourself. And once you're out of this situation, then you can start being a good person again. Being a good person is a luxury of circumstance. But particularly the Holocaust has so many incredible stories like this where you see people going, you know what? No, I'm going to do the hard thing. Yeah. And that's really very inspiring and beautiful, even though it's it is hard to tell the story without being very sad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, this story in particular, and again, the book is called I Will Plant You a Lilac Tree by Laura Hillman. Mm -hmm. And goddamn, the lilac tree got me again. Uh -huh. And it, it is an amazing story. And I think that's a big part of it is there's so many instances. You know, we just isolated her and Dick's story in here mostly. But there's so much else going on. And so much of this story is the people who stuck their neck out to help her. Yeah. And the times that she stuck her neck out to help other people. Mm -hmm. She saw this girl who had been kind of living it up in one of the camps, like really did okay for herself. Again, relatively speaking. But she was getting all the food she, you know, extra food and kind of special treatment and stuff. And then when they all got to Auschwitz, she had none of that. Mm -hmm. And she was broken and miserable. And she got real mean and kind of like got really nasty to the other prisoners and at one point Laura uh, when they were on the train with the with the bathroom bucket mm. a Nazi came in and told this girl that she had to go empty it and the girl didn't move and Laura immediately stepped up grabbed the bucket and did it herself she knew if I didn't do that they would have killed her and maybe somebody else wow. but the fact that I stepped forward to do it you know, at least someone was doing it and they just didn't care. But she ended up spilling it all over her dress and had to take the rest of the train ride like that. Like, you know, again, just an example of somebody really putting themselves at risk for someone else. And there's so much of that through that story yeah. that there is a lot of beauty to it. Um, it's a tough read, but it's a short read. It's like 250 pages. Really worth it, though. And speaking of the lilac bush yeah. that keeps getting getting me right in the gut. What a simple thing. Yeah. A simple thing to want. Yep. A simple gesture, really, of, and it must have felt so good to say, I'm planting something because we're here. We're going to be here. Yep. Not moving around. I'm not worried about what's happening. Right. I feel solid. Like, just that 
alone Mm -hmm. would be such a pleasure. And man, if everybody in there didn't deserve a nice retirement house in Long Beach, California, you know, sunny days. Give them all somewhere to live in Orange County, please. Oh, well, look, uh, thank you all for listening to this one. I know it's it's slightly different than what we usually do, but uh, again, a story worth telling. Absolutely. Um, I hope you uh, enjoyed it in whatever definition of that you want to take. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe we didn't leave you rolling on the floor laughing, <laughs> but hopefully you still get did get something valuable out of this story, yes. and some enjoyment of and some kind. <laughs> if any of our Polish Polish listeners want to write in and tell us how we butchered I'm the name Schlashauf, sure you yeah, know, Flash who knows. Alf. But uh, <laughs> but please reach out regardless. We'd love to hear from you, your thoughts on this really challenging story. Um, on any other episodes we've done in the past or if any ideas you have in the future. Yeah. Uh, shoot us an email, romance at iheartmedia.com. Right, or slide into the DMs on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Dynamite Boom. I'm at Oh Great, It's Eli. And the show is at Ridic Romance. Don't forget to drop us a review yeah. on Apple Podcasts or remember Spotify, you can rate now. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening on Spotify, go and drop us a five star. We'd love Thank that. You. And we will catch you next week with more exciting episodes. Cannot wait. Take care. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay. And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. 
Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.